G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. The UK is due to leave the European Union on the 31st of October. And as you will remember, a referendum was held back in 2016 to decide whether the UK should leave or remain. Leave was won by 52% to 48%. Now, it hasn't happened yet, and the Brexit date has been delayed twice. So we're going to be talking about Brexit over this next hour with what it might mean for the UK. We'll talk about dimensions too for the strength of democracy and if there are effects that might reach us here in Australia. Our special guest through this coming hour is Dr. Camille Magdaly. These days, he shares his time between the UK, the USA and Australia. And right now, He is in the midst of another Understanding the Times tour. It's the fifth Understanding the Times tour. The tour moves this week to Queensland with the next presentation on the Gold Coast tonight. Dr. Camille Magdaly is familiar to Vision listeners, especially 2020 listeners, with the Faith and the Future program each weekday. Dr. Camille Magdaly, a special welcome back to 2020. Good to be with you in person this time, Neil. And you are bringing a significant message, and uh, in-person, face-to-face is always very good, and uh, I know listeners will appreciate that too. Sometimes we talk on the telephone and little bits of delay, and sometimes the line's not always great. Well, today you're crystal clear, and I uh, really do appreciate that. Uh, Camille, you're in Australia. It is the fifth Understanding the Times tour, and one of the dimensions of what you're addressing in these presentations around Australia has to do with London the UK, and no doubt centering on what is happening, this the, sub, the substance of what's going on with the Brexit. Uh, this is a very, very important event, not just for the UK, but for the whole world. What are your thoughts on developments? Well, where do I even begin? I, first of all, our tour is about the four cities that are shaking the world, London, Washington, Canberra, and Jerusalem. When it comes to London, I'm looking at, of course, Brexit, but also the bigger picture. What is the European Union? Why would the British want to leave the European Union? Especially they have some very laudable goals, for example. And then, of course, the whole role of Britain in world affairs, something that we really need a fresh look at because Britain is not your average country. It is very, very significant. And the ties it has are enormous. I mean, for example, It is the instigator of the Commonwealth of Nations, which is, what, over 50 nations that have been bound together by common heritage, language, and colonial history, and so on. I mean, this is an unprecedented fraternity, if I can use that term, and let alone the accomplishments and the contributions. Let's say, say the English language. Isn't it amazing? The language of England has become the international language. It is spoken by one out of every three persons on this planet and is the mother tongue for 450 million people. It is too big to ignore, Neil. 
But the UK, Camille, has been so inseparably connected to the EU and become so reliant on trade across the European Union that uh, any sort of exit from it uh, is really a, a very deep tearing apart, isn't it? Well, it is, I suppose, and it isn't. It just depends. If the European Union was merely, as many European citizens have been led to think, a group of nations like a big European club to prevent war breaking out again on the continent, as it did twice in the last century, and to get prosperous together, if it was merely that, it wouldn't be such a tearing away for Britain to leave. But because the evidence is there and the quotes are available, it's not a conspiracy theory, that the goal of the movers and shakers is to basically have a European super state, then a significant country like Britain moving away Yes, it does leave a hole, right? Can I just say, though, that while they try to be really egalitarian and that all 28 countries are equal and the same, let's just say some countries are more equal than others. Germany and France are definitely more equal than others, and Britain in the same league. So we're not talking about the departure of just one of 28 members. We're talking about the departure of a significant member. It'd be like if France left, or even more importantly, Germany left, the EU, uh, I dare say it would be a cr of crisis proportions. With Britain leaving, it's not so yet because of France and Germany. But that is something to consider. So a super state losing a major member is much more cataclysmic, I suppose, and that's a strong term, as opposed to just leaving the club. Okay, a European super state and losing one of the main members is there, in your appreciation of how things are unfolding, Camille, uh, the issue here where if one leaves, there may in fact even be a trigger for a domino effect for others to leave. And so what has been built up over so many decades is in fact at risk because the UK may well be withdrawing. There are, theory is the risk that the lead of the UK might inspire others, member states, to do the same. That is the risk. I don't think that's imminent, not even with the big players of Germany and France. They, everyone needs each other. I don't think it's imminent. I think the EU can hold together without Britain, but let's face it, it is a, it is a setback, even if they can stay intact, to lose a member of that stature like the United Kingdom. But if we talk about a European super state, are we talking here, and you might like to fill us in on some of the details here, are we talking about an unelected super state? Because as I understand it, this is one of the contentious issues that uh, those who are dictating even the laws of the states who are part of the EU are not elected individuals. Well, my understanding is they, they have different organs of government in the European Union. They do have a parliament. Apparently, it's one parliament, but it meets in two locations every month. And in fact, apparently every month between Brussels and Strasbourg, which I think is around 600 kilometers in between, apparently they move all the files and other paraphernalia of the parliamentarians from Brussels to Strasbourg and then back again to Brussels. All right. They are technically democratically elected. However, it's the European Commission, which is 28 members. 
the European Commission is unelected, and they're the ones that actually make the laws, and then the European Parliament ratifies the laws. Think of it normally in a parliament. It's the parliament that proposes the laws and passes the laws and has the executive sign off. But in the EU, it's the unelected commissioners that actually make the laws and want, some would call it a rubber stamp, from the elected parliament. So, no, that isn't very democratic. But let, let's give credit where it's due. The EU had this mechanism. If you want to leave, you can leave. And you can have a referendum like Britain has. And if you want to leave, that that is your right. So they haven't totally expunged <laughs> democracy from their inner workings. Uh, so countries can leave, but they're encouraged not to. And uh, the EU is not making it any easier uh, for the UK because being, as you say, one of the key players, contributors uh, also financially uh, to what happens throughout the rest of the EU, uh, there are obvious issues there. Well, yeah, when we say they're not making it easy, maybe they're not making it easy to for the United Kingdom to leave. However, leaving is not easy anyway, even if they try to (laughs) facilitate it. The issue, several issues, but one of the key issues is Northern Ireland, which went through 30 years of trouble from late 60s to the late 90s. And then the Good Friday Agreement seemed to bring a lot of calmness and peace, not total resolution. But one of the things Good Friday did is they erased a hard border between the Irish Republic, which is independent, and Northern Ireland, which is part of the United Kingdom. So it's one island, but in in a sense in two countries. No border, no hard border. I've been there. I couldn't even find a sign saying you're entering into the Republic of Ireland. Very interesting. The big concern is... Brexit will create a hard border, upset the Good Friday Agreement. Maybe the troubles will return. That's the concern. How valid that concern is and whether it's worth holding up the whole process is another story. I spoke to one pastor in Northern Ireland who was a paramilitary in his time and spent his time as a teenager in jail and all that, but now has a wonderful church there in Belfast. He personally said, but he didn't explain to me. I wish he would have, and I could have passed it on. He said, "It's the threat is exaggerated. It's a beat-up. I don't know why it's, he says it. It's one, just one opinion. But like everything else, we want to get it right. We don't want to be making excuses. The danger in the Northern Ireland situation is if you had the Theresa May agreement, which failed three times, by the way, in the parliament just this year, the the withdrawal agreement she brokered with the EU. If we had that, if necessary, they would have had a backstop, meaning that, in essence, Northern Ireland, in order to prevent a hard border, would still be under EU rules, while the rest of the United Kingdom would be on its own. Now, that, in essence, is almost like severing the United Kingdom, separating Northern Ireland from the rest, and that's also an outcome you don't want. And in some cases, even more so than the endangering with the Good Friday Agreement. So this is one of the big things. But the other thing was the $39 billion divorce settlement, not dollar, pound, yes, <laughs> $39 <laughs> billion pound divorce settlement. And also whether Britain would truly 100% be broken from the EU or would they be tied to this rule or that rule forever and ever? If it's going to be a Brexit, it has to be a clean break. 
but an orderly break if possible. But let's remember, this is a divorce. You tell me when so much is at stake, how such a divorce will be anything but messy and turbulent. But again, if you know anything about the United Kingdom, they've gone through far worse crises than Brexit. I imagine, Camille, that the headlines in the UK, and I mentioned in the introduction, these days you spend a lot of time in the UK, share time between UK, USA and Australia, but uh, you are quite immersed in these uh, UK politics. I imagine the headlines are very dramatic about cataclysmic financial disaster uh, if Brexit happens with no deal. Uh, What do the headlines Reflect and uh, do people are they emotionally driven by those? Uh, what is the feeling amongst the people? I can tell you what it is. It's called Brexit fatigue. They are absolutely fed up. For three years, they've been told we're leaving, we're leaving, we're leaving, and they're still in it. And the how should you say performance of Parliament has really disgusted a lot of people. It's you know they voted for this thing. Even those that voted to stay in the EU have become acclimatized that we're leaving. Don't think any more about the 52% that voted to leave. That number has now increased because they've just, everyone just says, that's how it is. We're going. What, of course, is always a concern is that there may be some devious or uh, mischievous politicians who actually, they were remainers. They didn't want to leave. And so they're trying to torpedo Brexit by always saying no to, to everything, no to the, the Tory-led or conservative-led government. That's one thing. But the interesting thing, Theresa May's failed withdrawal agreement that couldn't pass the parliament three times had this uncanny ability to unite hardcore Remainers and hardcore Brexiters. I mean, this is the most bizarre marriage it can be. They both united together to defeat Theresa May. One, to have the hard Brexit because they say we need a clean break. And the Remainers, they say, let's have another referendum because, well, we'll double check that this is really what the people want. Let's have a quick reflection on Boris Johnson, who took over a very difficult uh, prime ministership, obviously, uh, determined to see the Brexit through. What are your impressions of Boris Johnson and his capacity to deliver? Okay, well, first of all, both my prayers for Theresa May, the former prime minister, and Boris Johnson, because they were given one terrible assignment left by their predecessor, David Cameron. I mean, it was an unenviable thing. But amazingly, they both put their hands up to be prime minister, and Johnson especially. I think he must run on extreme adrenaline. He doesn't, like Trump, he doesn't mind a fight. A high-stakes gambling kind of thing, he seems to be the guy. My impressions, there is a fair bit of mystery involving Boris Johnson from my point of view. He was the mayor of London. Then he was the leader of the Leave campaign during the referendum. He takes a lot of flack, but he can dish it out as good as he gets. He is personally, in his own life, controversial. He's with his girlfriend, Carrie, and they're in number 10. I think it's the first time they've had a de facto <laughs> couple in the, yeah. lo- in the not the lodge, number 10. But the funny thing is he's still married. I'm like going through a divorce, and it's, it's, it, his personal life best to leave that alone and focus on his performance. He is maybe the bull in the China shop. He's not afraid of risk. 
He's not afraid to uh, go to the high stakes. So he said to the British public, we will leave 31st of October. I would prefer to have a deal, but if we don't, we will still leave. That's what he's saying. And, of course, as you know, there's been a lot of drama in the last few days in the British Parliament. It might all work for his favor, even though he's been, quote-unquote, losing the votes, because I think what he wants is a general election that may resolve it, and it also may uh, deal with the far-left opposition leader, Jeremy Corbyn. Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson, a biblical perspective on life, culture, and current events. Our special guest this hour, Dr. Camille Majdali. He is on his way around Australia. The Understanding the Times tour, he started in Victoria, has been up through New South Wales. He's into Queensland for dates this coming week. You can check the dates. He'll be on the Gold Coast tonight. Uh, just go to vision.org.au. You'll find a link there that'll give you the dates and the venues for the Understanding the Times tour. Camille, what you are renowned for is your capacity to be able to explore those big, broad principles of prophetic uh, insight that we can glean from the scriptures. And uh, sometimes we're interested in the things that are going on around the world, the big picture issues. How do we connect biblical prophecy to the things that we're seeing? And is Brexit even a part of those sorts of big picture issues? Very good question. Not easy to answer, Neil. I am not one to look for a Bible prophetic event or verse behind everything that happens in the world. And I say that even though I teach on eschatology and prophecy and so on, I am the most reluctant teacher of this subject you could imagine. Because when I was a younger Christian, there was a lot of sensationalism and alarmism on key events. And for example, the introduction of barcodes. And I was told, this is the mark of the beast, beware, and all this. I mean, look, I was trying to get through uni, let alone unscramble some prophetic egg. So I didn't want to touch it. It was radioactive, confusing, and alarming. God changed me around 180 degrees. I now tell people, you need prophecy. It is the light that shines in a dark place. It is God's early warning service. It's not here to scare the daylights out of you. It is here to comfort you, to build you up, to prosper you. And there's scriptures for all that, right? And and more. So back to the EU and Brexit and so on. Now, the popular notion is that the EU is the platform for which the Antichrist will emerge, you know, allegedly from Rome and you know, when 10 countries came together, when 10, the 10th country joined the EU, the prophecy buffs were going wild, and I'm sure the books were selling faster than hotcakes and all this, and then the 11th member came. Oh, what happened to the 10 toes, the 10 countries? I think all the prophecy teachers fell into that trap. What we have to do is look at the general trends, but also have a very, very close look at what Scripture says. I just heard it today that all the major cities mentioned in the Bible for the end times are within a 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers of Jerusalem. Well, if that's the case, that would leave out Rome for sure, (laughs) (laughs) as well as London, as well as some other key cities. There is another school of thought which deserves serious attention, 
and that is while most people were taught to look for a blue-eyed, fair-haired, European antichrist, especially out of Rome, now they're saying, wait a minute, look at the place names in Scripture. They're all in the Middle East, all of them. And we need to remember that perhaps, as in the economy and wisdom of God, where it all began is also where all will end. And that's the Middle East, the cradle of civilization and and the like. So I tend to lean that way. But if I'm not sure, I will say I'm not sure. If I can't be 100% on something, I will mention that. I say, at present, this is what we think. So as far as Brexit is concerned, in some ways, Brexit is upsetting the apple cart rather than adding more apples to it. Because if Europe is the stage for the last world empire, then Brexit is foiling that world empire on European soil. Maybe Europe will be emerged or, shall we say, go in coalition with some other entity, particularly from the Middle East. Remember that the Middle East was the place where many world empires started from or were governed, empires that stranded or, shall we say, encompassed one or two or even three continents. So we need. that's why I like to get people focused on the Middle East a little more and on Europe a little less. And, of course, there are many more dimensions than just identifying biblical cities and aligning those with biblical prophecy because what we have from the Scripture is the way that God has proceeded to outwork his purposes through history and many of the principles that we might glean from that that outworking are still relevant to us today. Uh, let me just hit you with uh, the idea of one commentator who draws attention to the idea that perhaps the EU is like a modern day Tower of Babel. Uh, there's a connection there, not necessarily prophetic, but there is this warning, I guess, that says uh, these things that set themselves up against God uh, are actually dangerous enterprises. What are your thoughts for the idea the EU may be a modern-day Tower of Babel? Well, it does help to know the significance of the Tower of Babel, that it was not just in rebellion against God, but it is the traditional starting point of false religion, heathenism, and so on, based on rebellion to the living God. And putting that analogy on the EU, there could be arguably some parallels in this regard. Remember that the EU and their philosophy, well-meaning to say, because they wanted to prevent wars and help everyone to be prosperous because they had just gone through two horrific world wars on their soil, They want to do this without God. Now, this is not the first time in modern European history that utopianism, a perfect world without God, has been introduced. Fascism, communism, Nazism, all wanted this perfect world and make the people happy, and they want to do it without God. But because they don't deal with the most fundamental thing of human nature, and that's the sin issue, they treat human nature as basically good— rather than good and evil, because after all, we are in the image of God, and without dealing with that and taking God out of the equation, it actually brings, dare I use this term, a virility, a ferocity, a a violence. In other words, these utopian ideas actually don't bring blessing. They bring tyranny, warfare, genocide, and, and worse. 
it appears they haven't learned that lesson in Europe. Now, I'm not saying they're on the verge of degenerating any moment into a Nazi-like regime. I'm not saying that. But the fact that these movers and shakers of the EU are predominantly secular humanists, they not only don't believe in God, but they go even further. They live in denial that Christianity had anything to do with European identity. Neil, this is astounding blindness, to say the least. And, of course, that intense secularization of Europe is, in fact, still in contrast uh, with the UK and uh, those British foundations of Christian common law. There is still a very significant contrast there. How do you reflect on that? Well, Look, it seemed that Britain was going the way of the EU with the secularism and pushing Christianity to the sidelines and all that. But I have to say, as one that spends a fair bit of time in the United Kingdom, the Christian underpinnings are still clearly there, more than I imagined. Just like in Australia, one would be tempted to think Australia is just raw and secular, but oh, no. A lot of Christian activity in colonial time post-Federation time, and even today. Well, Britain, in that sense, is the same. And it is astounding some of the things, even British, how should you say it, religious freedom protections since the passing of same-sex marriage in the United Kingdom in 2014 are actually very, very strong. And there's been some impressive things happening to let people express their conscience the way they want. So Britain still has something there, and to be honest, There has been concerted prayer movements in Britain to help it leave the EU for that reason. Camille, uh, how's the the tour going so far? Uh, Can you identify any particular highlights that we might all like to enjoy? Uh, What's been outstanding for you on the tour? Well, it's been a great time. It's been going two and a half weeks, uh, just another seven weeks to go, praise God, and across Australia. But couple highlights. One was in Orange, New South Wales, where dear lady Laurel Honeyset had a vision to raise awareness of people in her area about what's going on rather than complaining, do something about it. So she's started this group. She's had a couple of speakers like Bill Muhlenberg, who we all know, and John Anderson, who we all know. And then she had me. And she was you know, hoping to get at least an acceptable turnout, but she got nearly a full house with a lot of excitement, a lot of buzz. It was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful meeting. Another was the all-day seminar in Adelaide for the Australian House of Prayer, Pastor Jenny Hagar, and apparently a Pastor Stephen from Alice Springs came. I was told he's come to hear you speak. Now, that's 1,500 kilometers away. No doubt he flew, and so... I thought it was great to not only meet him, but he's invited me to return to Alice Springs in the economy of the Lord. So there's a lot of activity, a lot of buzz as we're learning the topic of four cities that are shaking the world. So it's been great, and I look forward to being in the Gold Coast tonight at Kelvin Grove at Matt Prater's Church, tomorrow night in Budrum, uh, Thursday night, and in Nambour Flame Tree Baptist Church on Friday night. Okay, so for those listeners in southeast Queensland, check those venues and start times at vision.org.au. You'll get all the details there. Camille, when we talk about the issues that we talk about, 
uh, one of those things, I guess, you know, we get immersed in all sorts of biblical connection, biblical mm-hmm. wisdom, biblical prophecy, and what those things might mean to us today in the 21st century. And uh, sometimes we might take for granted the sort of commentary, the sort of things that we talk about, and but realizing something special here, that these things are not being discussed in mainstream media. Mainstream media ignores a lot of the particularly interesting and powerful issues surround those things that have a religious foundation to them. And you are particularly astute at being identified, the able to identify the religious differences that happen. So let's come back to the Brexit. Let's come back to the European Union. Uh, things that we're talking about today on this program, people will hear nowhere else. What are your reflections on the differences philosophically, religiously, between the EU and the UK? Right. First of all, secularism has a big challenge, and that is, especially secular humanism, it is blinded to the spiritual and the theological, and it is bound to the material world. And this is exceedingly limiting and problematic. Part of the reason we can't solve the Middle Eastern crisis, Arab-Israeli crisis, battle for Jerusalem, and so on, is that the leadership of the Western world, for by and large, thinks only in secular terms, totally ignores the theological component, can't even imagine that wars would be fought today over theology, but they have been all along, and do not understand the prophetic implications either. When it comes to Britain and the EU, the EU, for how should we say, Europe is on a journey. It's been a cradle of Christendom, and of course the birthplace of the Reformation and Protestantism, and the dissemination center of missionaries for all over the world. God bless Europe for what they've done for the rest of us. That's great. But it's been on a journey too, with uh, whether it's evolution, whether it's liberal theology, whether it's existentialism, postmodernism, you name it, it's been there. And it has been trying to mute the Judeo-Christian voice for many decades. Now, Britain, it's not just because they have the channel (laughs) separating them from Europe. Britain is different because the Christian heritage there is very, very rich and very, very deep. Yes, there is a crisis in Britain, too. For example, only 5% of a population of 60 million people are found in church. That includes Catholics, Anglicans, everybody. That's not that. I mean, even Australia fares better than that. I think we're about 10% of the population is found in church on a given Sunday. But nevertheless, those that are Christian, well, at least some of those that are Christian are very strong, very good leaders and are, as it were, being a voice, not just to their congregation, but to the community and even the nation. So when it comes to the issue of the Brexit, There is a side where at least some of the church, I can't say all of them, but some of them recognize there's a spiritual component in the EU that they don't want their country to go to because the EU, without realizing it, is heading into the sphere of neo-paganism. Because after all, if you want to be in denial that Jesus had anything to do with events in Europe and you're going to have a void there and you want to fill it, so they are filling it. And it's with a Phoenician goddess named Europa, which we could talk about in a moment, but European Christians saying, we don't want this 
at all. I'm saying British Christians. And there have been concerted prayer meetings, both in individual towns and even there was one in Wembley in January. 3,000 Christians came to pray that Brexit would come to pass. Let me ask you if you're able to enlarge a little on this figure called Europa, because uh, for some they'll say that's just a it's just a logo, it's just an image, it's just something that you know uh, that a nation might try and give to you know some level of marketing for tourism or something like that. But you think that there's a deeper significance to the way that Europa has appeared uh, in not only uh, marketing uh, strategies, but it become a symbol of what the EU has become. Well, again, I've always understood, and there is absolutely nothing to change my mind on this. I'm happy for evidence, but there's nothing for the change. And that is that Europe has been very profoundly Christian, not only in itself, but exported biblical Christianity to the ends of the earth. I am very disturbed at what I'm seeing happening in Europe. It's more so in Europe than in Britain, much more so. In Britain, at least, when it comes to the press, the newspapers and so on, you actually have a choice. Like in Australia, you can choose a conservative media or you can choose a left-wing progressive media. In Europe, it's all left-wing progressive. There's no conservative anything, as we understand it. But that also applies to the church, too. So Europa is this Phoenician goddess who allegedly gave Europe its identity by marrying Zeus, having children, and those children are the beginning of the European people. It's mythology. But the thing is, once Christianity moved in to Europe, Europa moved out, or she went into hiding, probably is a better term, or hibernation. And that's been going on for 15, 1600 years. And now in these last days, in a time of a falling away, an apostasy, that uh, Europe is toying with Europa, and I'm talking about the EU. Now, she's not official, all right? Let's be accurate. She's not official, but she is found on European coins, Euro coins, Euro banknotes, on postage stamps, on magazine covers. Apparently, there's a statue of her in front of a major EU building, but I think think that building is in Strasbourg, not in Brussels, because I actually looked for her. And then when you go to the Museum of European History in Brussels, you will be looking in vain for anything to do with Christianity, the cathedrals, the museums, the universities, the missionaries, the Christian place names. You won't find that. But what you will find is a whole exhibit dedicated to Europa. Why are they so fixated in this? Well, I think part of it is looking for identity, looking for a symbol. And, you know, they make her very attractive and all that. But uh, I'm just reminded of that verse in Revelation 17.3, because remember, Europa rides the bull, who is Zeus, and then jumps into the Aegean. And Revelation 17.3 says, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast. Neil, that may just be one big coincidence, that Europa's riding the beast, <laughs> or it may be connected. I say we need to watch and pray. Okay, there might be listeners who'd like to contribute. 1-800-316-316. Our talkback line is open. 
You can also leave a note on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash vision radio. Let's change direction here, uh, Camille. Coming back to what is at risk and what might even overflow around the world with the significance of Brexit, and that is that democracy is even at risk uh, if the will of the people is not fulfilled. How do you reflect on the tremendous issues that are at play right now and the forces that are trying to stop the will of the people? Well, first of all, I don't believe that the anti-democratic forces, be it in Britain, Australia, or elsewhere, are anything new. I think there's always been a pushback against democracy from day one when democratic nations like the United States and others came into being. However, what we see is that from day one, both, and let's let's talk honestly here, in 2016, you had the June 23rd Brexit vote, It was a shock result because nobody was expecting it. It totally went against the will of the elites, be it big business, the media, uh, of course, uh, major parties, left-wing parties, and a fair few in the so-called conservative parties. It totally – this was not what they planned for. And the pushback was almost immediate with Brexit, blaming it for everything under the sun. And then a few months later came the election of Donald Trump in the United States. Again, the elites were barracking for Hillary Clinton, not particularly because they're enamored by her, but she would cover their interests far more. And she was winning all the polls, and it just looked like a total lost cause. And then Trump wins. And there was immediate pushback in the United States, starting with both spontaneous and probably not spontaneous protests and violent protests coming against the election results. The fact is... When you cannot accept the vote of the people and you're pushing and pushing, that is concerning, especially when it's coming from empowered elites. But one of the talks they're saying, oh, we need a second referendum. Isn't it interesting? The chief minister of uh, first minister in Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, Scottish Nationalist Party, we need another referendum on independence. They only had one five years ago. They said they would only ask for one in a lifetime. And now after what? Three or four years, she's asking for it. And they're trying to say, we need a second referendum on Brexit. More referendums is not necessarily respecting democracy. Sometimes what leftists do is they want continual referenda till they get the answer they want. What I would say, whether it's in Australia, Britain, United States, is if you want to keep your democracy, be prepared to fight for it. Because... There are anti-democratic forces that will say they were defending your interests. Remember the communist regimes during the Cold War. Some of them were called the People's Republic. They did everything, this cabal of central planners in the name of the people, but the people had no say in the matter and they were the least to benefit. We're taking calls. 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from Mike in Tasmania. Hello, Mike. Welcome along. Uh, Good morning. Uh, The other day I was reading the letter to the church in Pergamum, and Jesus said, uh, that's where Satan has his throne. And the the Germans in the 1900s exported those idols over to a, um, a museum in Berlin. And, of course, 
you know, when you export things like Satan's throne or, or you know, idols or temple things, it, it doesn't go well for you. And I think those things are still there in Berlin. A thought from Camille. Well, Mike, you are correct. In Berlin, the eastern part of the city at the Pergamon Museum, you can see the uh, altar of Pergamum, and in the same museum, you can see the Ishtar Gate of Babylon. And so, yes, the Germans were very involved archaeologically a century ago, and they saw some magnificent remains, and they said, we want it in Berlin. So these things moved, I think, I'm not sure, around the, the 1920s, which meant that Adolf Hitler was now the guardian and custodian of these two very highly pagan symbolic things. And Nazism, it appears, had a great infusion of neo-paganism itself, and perhaps it derived a lot of spiritual energy from those iconic exhibits. Thank you so much to Mike from Tasmania. Let's take another call. Penny is on the line from Tasmania. Hello, Penny. Welcome. Hello, Neil. Hello, Camille. Great to hear from you, Penny. What are your thoughts? Yeah. First of all, because I can't get onto the website, Camille, can you please tell me, are you coming to Taz? Down this end at Hobart. Okay. Are you coming to Tasmania this year, Camille? Well, I came to Tasmania last year and had two very wonderful meetings, but both of them in the north. Unfortunately, Penny, this year I'm not coming to Tasmania, but we will see what we can do for next year. There is some talk about inviting me. So let's pray that happens. Penny, no doubt there'll be a few disappointed Tasmanians for this year. But uh, thank you for calling in and for making that uh, that thought known. And I'm sure that'll be part of Camille's planning for next year. 1-800-316-316. And running short of time, I want to just reflect on, you know, you pick up quotes and uh, just to pick up on, uh, something that I picked up uh, from some commentary on what's going on with the Brexit and uh, with reflection on the European Union. Let me just read this quote here. The European Union is not a benign fraternal association based on cooperation and collaboration. It is an anti-democratic, bureaucratic, political union which is incrementally imposing an entire corpus of dictates and directives that are antithetical to centuries of the British democratic tradition and common law. Just to throw you in the deep end uh, with a quote like that, Camille, is that uh, is that something that you could reflect on the European Union and say, well, this would be one reason why people in Britain would be concerned? All right, I probably wouldn't be as scathing. Maybe that's just the diplomatic side of me coming out. What I would say, because I have, of course, done reading and dialogue and what have you with people vis-a-vis the European Union. Look, what I think is a fair statement, I do want to give them the benefit of the doubt when they had the inception of the EU, which was, of course, the common market in the old days. They, I think, were sincerely motivated for peace and prosperity for the continent. And it appears that their initial efforts in the first decades were paying off and everyone was doing well. Then, of course, Eastern Europe becomes free from the communist yoke at the end of the Cold War, and they bring in all these Eastern European members, and that did change the dynamic. But they were hoping to help these Eastern European countries come up to speed economically and politically and be full-functioning democracies and market economies. I, I think that is genuine. However, because of their 
heavy-duty secular humanist predisposition. And because they are progressivist slash left-wing slash – they call it liberal, but I always prefer progressivist – that means more taxes, more regulations, more this and that. So, you know, they are going the progressive way. That is for sure. Maybe it's not the makings of the Antichrist showing up tomorrow, but just remember, you can have the infrastructure having been well intended to begin with, and then somebody down the track comes and turns it all around for his evil purposes. Okay, I'm going to need to draw a line under those telephone calls. Thanks for those who did call in. We are running just a couple of minutes until we've got to tie things up here, Camille. The fifth Understanding the Times tour is underway tonight. You'll be speaking on the Gold Coast. Uh, For those listeners who are uh, south side of Brisbane, around the Gold Coast, northern New South Wales, you can find the venue and the time for the start of that meeting tonight. When you go on to vision.org.au, you'll find a link there for the Understanding the Times tour and then for the dates that are coming through the rest of this week. Camille, the tour and uh, what you're uh, setting out to achieve here, I imagine that the message even grows day by day because the headlines are changing day by day. This is a very, very important time to be bringing this sort of message to the Australian people. Well, it absolutely is. And yes, I do have to add new information as events transpire, particularly in the United Kingdom, but it could also include what's happening in Washington with President Trump and what's happening in Canberra with Prime Minister Morrison, and never a dull moment when it comes to Jerusalem. So I do urge our listeners to make a point to come to Understanding the Times. The whole purpose of the tour, Neil, is to help people know not only what is happening, why it's happening, but give them practical, pastoral, and heartfelt exhortation so they can prepare for the future with confidence. That's what we're here to do. It is a deeper message than you might ordinarily hear at church. I suppose it's not necessarily a child-friendly message, but I would say, Camille, you'd be very wise to invite your grown-up family, uh, to invite your friends, uh, to let people know in your community that these meetings are on, because as we say, you won't hear this in the mainstream media. Uh, You'll have the opportunity to scratch the surface as we've done today, and I know we could have gone so much deeper, but we've only been able to scratch the surface but when you go into the meeting say tonight uh, on the gold coast i guess you'll have a 90 minute or so presentation you'll be able to go quite deep and going deep is important for people to understand the times and to prepare for what they do next absolutely remember first chronicles twelve thirty two. this is the basis of the whole tour the children of issachar were men who understood the times to know what Israel ought to do. We want to help people become future ready, but it begins with understanding God and understanding the times. And order to you, Camille, because it's not just the big cities, the big churches that you're going to. You've got a program across seven weeks. And you've got uh, not only the big churches and the big towns and the cities, but also small country towns. And to take advantage of the opportunity to have a high caliber, 
high reputation Bible teacher to be able to come to your community. This is something worthy of support. Uh, let me just point people to vision.org.au. And of course, that's the Vision website. You'll find a link there for the Understanding the Times tour to find those dates and those venues for when Camille is visiting you. You can be able to pl- click on the link there for your state and you'll see the dates that Camille will be coming to a venue near you. Camille, Outstanding uh, insights once again today. I want to thank you so much for being a part of 2020. Pleasure, Neil. See you again. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.